Welcome to Bravery Trek Run Ashore, a podcast for Bravery Trust in partnership with Content Group. Welcome to another episode of Run Ashore, the podcast that follows this year's route for the Bravery Trust fundraiser, Bravery Trek. I'm Mark Cooper, and thank you for joining me. We're well into learning about 12 locations that are significant to the Royal Australian Navy in Sydney Harbour. Today, we're joined by Rear Admiral retired Simon Cullen, who will help us to better understand the history and significance of Garden Island. Simon is both a friend and a colleague, and it's an absolute delight to have him on the show. Simon, welcome. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Lovely. Um, Simon, can you tell us a little bit about your your background and your military career? Yeah, so I grew up in Western Australia, and uh, when I was growing up, Perth was a very isolated city, and uh, I always had the itch to travel, and wasn't sure how I was going to do that until I saw an ad in the paper saying, join the Navy, travel the world, and get paid to do it. So that was my, my option to get out of town really quickly, and... Uh, it was the best thing I ever did because I had a fabulous 38-year um, career in the Navy. And as we like to say in the business, it was really 38 years of undetected crime. I was very lucky to do what I did and uh, got away with uh, some great uh, experiences. Um, I joined as a seaman officer, so that basically meant I was spending most of my time in ships, um, either driving them from the bridge, eventually rising to senior command positions uh, in ships and then uh, senior command positions ashore. And um, one of the things that changed my career direction quite unexpectedly was the attacks on uh, September 11, uh, 2001, where I was following this very traditional naval career and then all of a sudden the world changed for operational reasons and uh, I went very much into joint and combined stream and therefore um, for the last seven years of my naval career I was in the United States which I never thought I would finish up at. Um, so anyway uh, 38 years of, of a great career of which much was spent at Garden Island in Sydney um, over, over that time. Yes well thank you um, it's an, an amazing career that you've had 38 years in the Navy uh, you know, thank you for that service. My pleasure thank you. Yeah um, so let's turn to chatting about Garden Island itself. Yeah. yeah. Um, Simon, tell us a little little bit about its sort of location and its size. Well, the first thing to note is actually it's no longer an island. So when you're walking around the harbour foreshore uh, looking for a garden island, um, if you're looking for an island, you're not going to find it because it's now connected to Potts Point. And uh, that occurred in the early 1940s, when, and we might get to that in a subsequent discussion. But it's right in the sort of centre of um, the Sydney Harbour um, Eastern Harbour, that is, to the east of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, not far from Lady Macquarie's chair and not far from the Sydney CBD either. It's very centrally located and uh, it's more on the uh, southern side of the harbour though, so if you stand on it and look north you'll see, you know, Taronga Zoo, Bradley's Head, Middlehead, etc. So it's, uh, it's a beautiful location and I love, every time I go there, just uh, looking around, seeing the environment and putting my toes in the water and all that sort of stuff and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great place. Yeah. And, and when did you um, serve or, or when were you located at Garden Island? Look, well, I very much went uh, there in my first year in the Navy in 1977. Um, we did what was then called a training cruise, so it was six weeks at sea to experience life at sea to make sure that we had what it took to sort of 
for Navy to invest further money in our careers and developers. So I joined HMAS Duchess at, alongside at Garden Island and uh, she was the last Navy ship of the era to have an open bridge. I'll never forget that. So when it rained, you got wet. When it was rough, you got wet. And if it wasn't doing that, you got sunburnt or windburnt. And uh, it was, but it was a great experience. Uh, these days, all our bridges are enclosed, but that was the last ship to have what's called an open bridge. And she sailed from Garden Island for my training cruise way back then. Yeah, great. Um, so going to uh, a bit on Garden Island, so how did it get its name? Well, it goes right back to the um, European settlement of um, Australia. Now, obviously, there have been a long-term Indigenous um, presence in and around Sydney Harbour, and I have no doubt they were um, regular visitors, visitors to Garden Island. Um, but, of course, it didn't have the name Garden Island then. It came about uh, in 1788, so Captain Arthur Phillip, who was with the First Fleet, um, sailed into Sydney on the 26th of January and uh, anchored at Sydney Cove and established a settlement at Sydney Cove after finding, obviously, Botany Bay wasn't, wasn't suitable to... Uh, to accommodate the settlers uh, and the convicts, etc., and um, they sailed past Garden Island uh, on the way to Sydney Cove. So that's the 26th of January. So on the 5th of February, so less than two weeks later, HMS Sirius, who was the flagship, uh, an Arthur Phillips ship of the First Fleet, um, established a garden on Garden Island to feed uh, the convicts and the sailors etc that uh, were part of the first fleet crew now they didn't uh, clear the whole island so it was heavily wooded at the time you might imagine even today you know bradley's head on the western side around to middlehead is very thickly wooded yes. that was garden island so they cleared a little bit of garden island uh, and they sowed the first crops uh, in early 1788 so very soon after the first uh, fleet arrived yes and i remember hearing or reading that the uh the colony struggled uh, in the it early did. days with growing crops, and it they did. they tried to grow crops also over on the uh, on the, the mainland there near Mrs Macquarie's chair. Yep. But it was very yep. um, sandy soil. It, it was it didn't take well to growing. So there were rescue yeah. missions. They had to go back to places such as South Africa to to get food, and of course they did establish a settlement at Parramatta, where the ground was more fertile, and they were able to grow. Um, some crops there, but it took a long time for that to happen. So, in the very very early days, Garden Island was it. That's where the crops were coming from. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that so colonial history time? So, sort of seventeen eighty eight to the you know sort of the mid eighteen hundreds. Yes. So, um, HMS Sirius was the um, first flagship, uh, and then what happened was the flagships tended to rotate um, thereafter through the next uh, fifty odd years or so. Um, so in 1795, uh, HMS Supply was the flagship and uh, her captain, Lieutenant Braithwaite, decided he wanted to have a house. And so uh, a house was built for Lieutenant Braithwaite on Garden Island. And so Garden Island is really part of Australia's longest settled uh, infrastructure, so to speak, that uh, we have. So that was the first building that was there. And, and there was a subsequent series of, of uh, guard ships, as I said, um, one of the interesting things was when Governor, Governor Macquarie came on the scene in 1811, he proclaimed that the area which is now Government House, the Botanic Gardens, which people can walk through, the area we know as the Domain, and Garden Island as his private estate. So he took it over uh, to be his 
uh, his territory, so to speak, and anyone who trespassed on, trespassed on Garden Island, for example, was, was prosecuted. And that lasted right through to uh, 1856. The other thing about that period was there wasn't a large British naval presence in Sydney during the first half of the 19th century. And the reason for that was that the Battle of Trafalgar, the famous Lord Nelson battle in 1806, where Britain thereafter ruled the waves, there was no perceived threat to the British fleet on the high seas anywhere in the world. So there was no need to send a squadron down to Sydney for the Pacific piece to, to have a presence. So apart from the guardship, there wasn't much happening up until the mid-1850s around Garden Island. Yes, yes. That's interesting. It reminds me of when the first fleet arrived in Botany Bay. I think that there was a, a French um, ship that came in. Yeah, two days uh, later. La Perouse. <laughs> That's <Yes>. right. <laughs> we could all be speaking French. Yes. <laughs> and, that, and that ship disappeared. It, they, it never actually got back to, to, uh, yeah, to France. It's no. a fascinating story. Yeah. yeah. Um, how about sort of the, the mid to late 1800s? Yeah, so um, um, the Navy that was present, so, the, so the, the fleet guard ship that was present for the first half of the 19th century, they had a store area um, really round about uh, Bannalong Point and down towards, so where the Opera House is now, yes. down towards Circular Quay, down the, where the toaster is, the, the office blocks. So they had a few warehouses there which are very small and there's a wharf there, etc. But it was uh, determined that it wasn't really big enough. So the colonial secretary at the time wrote to the British government in 1856 saying, how about we use Garden Island for a Navy base? And in 1859, that was approved by the British government and they declared the Australia station at the same time. Now, the Australia station is still a term we use today, um, although it's not publicly well known. But in those days, the Australia station uh, was a geographic area that spread from, say, Samoa in the central Pacific right through Australia to the middle of the Indian Ocean and up to Singapore and down to Antarctica. So it was a whopping great big area. And the British plan was to have a naval squadron that would sort of operate in that area and it would basically be naval diplomacy going from place to place to make sure things were stable and things were under control. Right. So that was all approved in 1859. Um, but of course, there was no infrastructure in Garden Island then. There was there was nothing. There was a garden. That that was about it, and the house. Um, so uh, uh, they put an application for uh, infrastructure funding, and that didn't come through until the early 1880s. And they got fifty thousand pounds to build a number of buildings on Garden Island, which you can still see there today. They are things such as the chapel, the sail loft, some warehouses some administrative buildings and a big clock tower, yes. um, which are all still there. Uh, that came from that £50,000. And so for the, the end of the 19th century, um, they were building those buildings. And in the mid-1890s, the first dockyard workers arrived from the UK to operate the facility. So you can see uh, it was a slow old process, a typical bureaucracy, but they were building up to a, a capability. And such that by 1900... The first operation was mounted from Garden Island. That's a naval operation. That was pre-Federation just. So it was a New South Wales naval brigade that left Garden Island that went to China for the Boxer Rebellion. So they sailed from Garden Island. So that's the first operation that was mounted from there, so to speak. Obviously, in 1901, things changed with Federation and the federal government became responsible for um, defence and national security matters. 
paid a lot of attention to um, the Navy in particular through Deakin, who was Prime Minister in the early 1900s. Uh, and at the same time, of course, there was a growing concern about Germany and, um, uh, and a little bit about Japan too, although Japan didn't enter the First World War as an as a enemy combatant. Um, so there was a, um, a big naval conference, sorry, a big conference in 1909 called the Imperial Conference, which happened every year. It's basically the British cabinet plus prime ministers from the Commonwealth countries. So the Canadian prime minister would go, the Australian prime minister would go, and all the rest of them. And they decided that they would form a Pacific fleet and it would have three stations in the Pacific, one of which would be in Sydney. Um, and at the same time, the new fledgling Australian government's thinking about a navy that was our own as opposed to uh, hiring British ships, so to speak. So they invested money uh, to have naval ships built. Um, we got uh, the prefix Royal to the Australian Navy in 1911 and those ships being built, the, f the first naval fleet, so to speak, arrived in Sydney Harbour in 1913. And from thereafter, the Royal Australian Navy was based at Garden Island. Right. So that's oh, how that came out. That's fascinating, out. yeah. yeah. Um, and from that time, so 1913 through to today, yeah. um, can you tell us a little bit about what's happened at Garden Island in that time? Yeah, so um, the, really uh, Garden Island has grown into really being the most, I think, the most significant military base in the Southern Hemisphere. That's Army, Navy, Air Force. I think it's really um, right up there. Um, and, and during the First World War, for example, uh, not only was it a mounting base for the Australian Navy for operations during the First World War, but they were fitting out um, troop ships, transport ships, you know, they were taking the diggers to the Middle East and, and to Europe, etc. Uh, and they were manu manufacturing naval guns at Garden Island during um, World War One. So it was quite a a big place, and there were thousands and thousands of people working there. Yes. Um, but thereafter, after World War One, things went downhill fast. In the 1920s, um, the place stagnated, um, change of government, obviously, in Australia, and different priorities, etc. There was an international level agreement to get rid of certain big ships to sort of make sure there wasn't a, a second World War, which unfortunately didn't work. So we lost HMAS Australia, for example, that was sunk off Sydney, um, because she was part of the bargain to downsize naval fleets around the world. And then in the early 1930s, the Great Depression happened. And, and so um, no, no investment, not much happening. Um, equipment becoming very obsolete by the 1930s. Facilities not really being fit for purpose. Um, uh, and that didn't turn around till the mid-1930s, when again the prospect of war with Germany and Japan was starting to... to, um, to um, come on the horizon. Right through the first half of the 20th century, Australia's defence strategy was based on Singapore and how um, the, British, the British had invested a huge amount of money to build military facilities, particularly naval facilities in Singapore, and they always promised to have a fleet there to defend Australia should the balloon go up. We all know that didn't happen, but Australian thinkers were thinking about that in the mid, mid to late 1930s. They realised that um, for a ship to undergo repairs, it had to go 8,000 miles there and back to Singapore to get docked, and that just wasn't acceptable. Um, and so in 1938, the Australian government said, we need a graving dock in Australia. And uh, the only experts on that were British, so they went to a, a large British company that um, gave us advice, and they chose the site, which now resides between Garden Island and Potts Point. So there was 
open water there until 1940. Um, they said, that's where you've got to build it. And we took the advice and said, okay, let's go. And so they started in 1940. By 1943, there were 4,500 people working on that, that site. Wow. It was, at the time, the biggest construction project in Australian history. So yes. Obviously, the Snowy Mountain Scheme came afterwards, but yes. uh, at that time, it was the biggest project. It took five years to finish. Um, so they didn't finish it until March 1945, which is almost at the end of the Second World War. But um, um, by then, uh, they had a fabulous dockyard uh, with a huge graving dock that could take two large, very large warships, sort of end-to-end, stacked inside, and all the facilities around it, and you could walk from the island to Potts Point. And, uh, so that was, um, that was uh, a key part of the island's development. And then also, um, uh, you know, they were continuing running operations from Garden Island, so the Korean War, the Vietnam War, etc., in fact, for the Vietnam War, HMO Sydney 3, which was an aircraft carrier that had no aircraft on it, was used as a transport ship. And they had built a very, what's called a large Bailey Bridge, which was a um, like a circular spiral thing that went from the ground at Garden Island up to the flight deck, and they were able to drive army trucks up. And So the, the, the upper deck of the ship was covered in trucks and other vehicles, and off they go to Vietnam, drop them off, and then come back and get some more. Um, so it was a very busy base. Um, but uh, by the late 1970s, it was going getting a little bit tired, a little bit old, and maybe not really fit for future purpose. So there was another radical change, um, and this is where I, I witnessed the change. Um, from the entrance of Garden Island down towards Willamaloo, so down what's called Kappa Wharf Road towards the Finger Wharf, um, was a whole heap of warehouses which were um, used to basically store wool that was going into the wool ships, you know, for the previous 100 years or so, um, which were all obsolete. And so they decided to demolish all those and create a new what area called a fleet base, which basically went from the Garden Island boundary or the new Garden Island boundary down to the Finger Wharf. And uh, uh, so there was much more berthing space for ships and uh, famous things like Harry's Cafe de Wills, which was yes. a hot dog caravan thing, had to move to be relocated and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so uh, that development continued through the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, as a new class of the ship came along, like FFGs, there were specialised wharves and facilities built. Uh, and even now, today, there are there's, the last couple of years been major wharf extensions to accommodate the ever-growing expanding size of the Royal Australian Navy and and Garden Island remains the centre of uh, attention for for Navy. Yes. Thank you for sharing. That's been fascinating. <laughs> the couple of things I'd love to touch on with you, Simon, and I've, I've been delighted to um, have an opportunity to go out to Garden Island myself, uh, you know, having done some work in defence and seeing, you know, seeing the beautiful Sydney sandstone buildings there yes. from the you know, mid-1800s and... Um, uh, so one of the things I just wanted to touch on was, of course, uh, back in 1788, there was the initials carved into the rock. Yeah. So, um, you know, interestingly, uh, Garden Island had two hummocks or two little hills, whatever you'd like to describe it, north and south. Uh, only one remains today, the northern one. The southern one, has, over many years, has been demolished and flattened and whatever. And on that northern hummock, 
um, were a whole heap of sandstone rocks. And you can still go there today and see initials carved in the um, rocks like IW, whatever they are, and 1788 next to them. So we don't know whether they were, I don't think we know, maybe we do, but I, I certainly don't know whether they were sailors or convicts. Um, but they are genuine graffiti from 1788. <laughs> <laughs> That's on Garden Island. Yeah. The other one I wanted to touch on with you is, uh, of course, the famous um, Japanese um, mini-subs in, uh, in World War Two. Yeah, so uh, that's another very intriguing aspect um, of the history of Garden Island and the history of the Australian Navy, really. Um, so you go back to 30th of May 1942, and all of a sudden, um, over the eastern suburbs, there was this aeroplane flying over that uh, people started paying attention to because it was sort of unusual, and it was buzzing and it was fairly low, and it was basically surveilling the city harbour and paying particular attention to a US war, large US warship that was at a buoy just east of Garden Island called, and the ship's name was USS Chicago. And uh, she, had, she was there for a bit of uh, rest and R&R, and she famously had been involved in some battles with Australian ships um, not too um, much before that. Um, but anyway, it turns out that the, uh, the aircraft was a seaplane that had been launched from a Japanese submarine called I-21, and she was about 35 nautical miles northeast of Sydney, so she was sort of out, out in the sea. Launched this plane to have a look around. plane did its thing. Um, yes, it was unusual, but no one did anything about it. There was no increase in alert levels or warnings or preparedness or readiness or anything like that. So the aircraft goes back to the submarine, lands on the water, gets tied to the upper deck of the submarine and the submarine carries on and does its thing until the next day, the 31st of May when um, uh, several submarines um, surface off Sydney, um, a little bit distant so you can't, couldn't see them from the coast but they 10 miles out uh, and they launched three midget submarines. They were I-21, I-24 and I-27 and they were basically on a suicide mission to get, enter into Sydney Harbour and take out as much as they could, could in terms of warships that were either alongside Garden Island or at, at Boys and things, and particularly USS Chicago was a juicy target. Um, unfortunately um, for the defenders, um, that night the British Admiral, who was in charge of, of Sydney, um, was having a dinner party, and the captain of USS Chicago was a dinner guest. At, uh, so there wasn't much sort of anticipation or preparedness for an attack which would eventuate that night. But th as I said, three mini-submarines came, came in, uh, and there was an anti-submarine net across the heads, so from South Head to North Head, so um, it didn't work all that well, but it did work to a certain degree. So at 8.15 that night, so it's dark, um, I-27 gets caught in the submarine net, so it's yes. the first one to come into the harbour, so it doesn't get through into, into the harbour itself. At 9.58... I-24 gets through the head, so it was able to negotiate its way through the net and get inside the harbour. At 10.35 that night, I-22 was detected by um, some workmen in a workboat who were sort of naval people, and uh, they were blowing whistles, sh shining lights and things, saw a periscope and uh, knew it was a, a submarine that shouldn't be there. Um, so they called in the cavalry and they dropped demolition charges on it and were able to sink that midget submarine 
in Sydney Harbour. But there were three of them, and the third one continued on uh, until at 11.30, loud explosions were heard um, around Garden Island. And what had happened was um, the mini-submarine had torpedoed uh, US, or tried to torpedo US Chicago. We think she was across near Bradley's head, uh, pointing towards Garden Island. Mm. US Chicago was in the way. Torpedoes missed Chicago and hit a Navy depot ship, which was an ex-ferry called Cuttable, which was alongside on the eastern side of Garden Island. And unfortunately, uh, when it detonated, 19 sailors were killed and 10 were wounded. Um, so it was a very tragic uh, event. Um, that submarine did escape from Sydney Harbour, but was found not, I think, about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, off Sydney Heads, about uh, 10 miles out. Yes. And as a, as a as a as a wreck. So it was quite a potent um, period of Australian naval history, and very sad for those who lost their lives. But um, not the finest hour in terms of naval defence, perhaps, of Sydney Harbour. But um, it is well, what it, it is. It is a fascinating time, and I know, uh, you know, looking at our personal family histories, uh, you know, my family were in Sydney at the time, and they decided to um, to move to Orange because they right. just wanted to get away from yes. the coast, and there's yeah. a lot of fear. Well, the other thing was, was that these submarines had guns on them too, some of them, and they were actually bombarding the eastern suburbs yes. with their um, uh, four-inch guns or whatever, from yeah. the, and yeah. uh, that was very unpleasant. It really brought the war to Sydney, yeah. that, that, yeah. that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about um, Garden Island, Simon? Unfortunately for the public, access is not great because it is a, uh, a prohibited military area. Um, but there is access on the northern end of the island and you still can catch the Sydney Harbour Ferry that goes to Watson's Bay, it stops at Garden Island and there is a fantastic Navy Heritage Centre on the northern tip of Garden Island which you can go to uh, generally, um, which is basically a little museum of naval history and I'd highly recommend that to anyone who can do that. Oh, what a lovely thing to do on a weekend with the family. Yep, it sure is. Nothing better than naval history. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, once again, um, thanks, Simon, for coming in today. I really appreciate it, mate. Um, and I know I've certainly learnt a lot about Garden Island, as I'm sure that you, our listeners, have as well. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast streaming platform. More episodes are available that follow the journey of the trek, uh, but for the moment, keep on doing the kilometres and bye for now. You've been listening to Bravery Trek Run Ashore. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, be sure to subscribe to stay up to date with all the latest episodes.